You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on the Book of Romans, now looking at Romans Q. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. now in Romans chapter 9. Having presented the gospel of grace in chapters 1 to 8, Paul now answers an obvious question. What about Israel? If Israel has missed God's purpose for them, was this just a wasteful experiment? What about all those centuries and traditions? I should give you fair warning. These are deep waters, these chapters. As Peter commented of Paul, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Romans 9-11 to seem to qualify. Let's start at the beginning. Romans 9-1 I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brothers my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. This is not just an intellectual discussion. Paul agonizes over the fate of his fellow countrymen, the Jews. And like Moses in Exodus 32-32, the loving apostle would gladly surrender his salvation for theirs. But God does not accept substitutes, Psalm 49, 6-8. He did not allow Moses to take the punishment that was due the Israelites, nor would he have allowed Paul to substitute for the Israelites of his day. Only the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, can redeem lost humanity. God has worked through the people of Israel. We commented on this in our study of chapter 3. The heritage of Israel is glorious, even if it's tarnished by sin. So has God rejected his people? Was it all for naught? How are we to understand this problem? Well, let's let Paul help us see where he's going. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. To understand this, we have to know at least a little bit of Old Testament history. After Abraham, the man of faith, came his son Isaac. Isaac had his son Jacob. But it wasn't quite as simple as that. Abraham actually had Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac actually had Jacob and Esau. Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, are descended from him. But his brother Esau, who shares Isaac with Jacob as his father, forms a different line 
of the genealogy altogether. So Paul is saying it's the descendants of Isaac who will be called. Not all descended from Israel are Israel. So it's a matter of definition. Lot and Abraham went separate ways and established separate genealogies. So did Isaac and Ishmael. So did Jacob and Esau. So claiming Jacob, whose covenant name you probably know is Israel, claiming Jacob as your ancestor doesn't necessarily prove you're among the covenant people of faith because it's more than just a lineal descendancy. Theoretically, all of Jacob's children should have followed, but it was no more uh, the case that they were all on track with God than that, that all of Isaac's children or all of Jacob's children were on track. So the children of flesh, physical Israel, physical Israel, are not necessarily the children of the promise. I mean, not unless they have actually accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Jacob and Esau, once again, were both Isaac's sons, but one gave up his right to the blessings that he might have received. That means that in Paul's time, in the first century, some, but not all Jews, were true Jews. Continuing, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also has conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, or the children, not yet, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul's language gets more and more difficult to bear, doesn't it? Especially for our modern years. Well, God knew in advance which of Isaac's sons would live by faith. Based on this foreknowledge, he worked his purposes out in their lives. Another example he will give in a moment is Pharaoh. An example of God using providential purposes when he knew that the person he was trying to influence would not listen, who would go astray. And Jacob was God's friend. Abraham was actually called the friend of God, but Jacob was God's friend. He was on God's side. While Esau, by virtue of his character and his poor choices and his behavior, he was God's enemy. And we may say, well, God can't be the enemy of anyone. Well, yes, he can, because there are two sides. And before we're Christians, we're on the wrong side. Colossians 1.21. In biblical language, to love and to hate frequently mean to be one's friend or one's enemy. So before we were right with God, in a sense, he hated us. But we must not imagine that this suggests a sinful uh, human emotion. It simply means that there was a state of enmity between us and God. The elder will serve the younger. That's an interesting pattern in the Bible. In traditional culture, the younger sons would always serve the older, but this is often reversed in the Bible. Jacob and Esau give one example. You should try to find other examples. There are quite a few. But really, Jacob and Esau refer here not to the individuals, but to the nations who came from them. From Esau came the nation of Edom, and from Jacob came the nation Israel, and Israel dominated 
Edom. So we're not talking about one person. We're talking about corporate entity, the body of Israel, a whole nation who came from Jacob. Once again, Israel is Jacob's other name. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Well, I like that, you know, because I have my plans. I've got my will, and I'm running around. <laughs> but it's all up to God and his grace. For, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And this is, again, the kind of language that bothers us, these hard proofs of the Bible. And it's true. If you go back to Exodus, the plague account sometimes says that God hardened his heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Actually, a number of different verbs are used. Some interpreters think that they took turns hardening the heart. That is, Pharaoh took a turn at his own heart, and then God went, and then Pharaoh. That's possible. Others would see these actions being one and the same. I lean more to, towards that understanding, that those actions are concursive. When Pharaoh hardens his heart, the Lord is hardening his heart. The Lord's involved in the same process. The process doesn't alternate. What alternates is the way the process is described. And to illustrate, if you put a cold stick of butter outside on a warm day, it would be just as true to say you melted the butter as that the sun melted the butter. I mean, there is a kind of a coincidence of wills if the sun has a will for this analogy. I mean, the sun is going to melt things and, and you want it to melt. So you work together. There's no violation. People are true to their nature. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? And, you know, that's a good question Paul anticipates because if we put butter in the microwave, even just leave it outside and it melts, butter had no choice. But that's just an analogy, right? Butter's an analogy. Pharaoh is a real person. Israel was a real nation. So here's how Paul develops it. But indeed, O man, who are you? to reply against God. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does the potter not have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor, another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So Paul is saying that God's purpose, when we look at his providence, he knows the end from the beginning, he works through, he's always just, but he's been working through Israel. God's not unfair. First, we have no right to talk back to God. It's his prerogative to use us any way he wants. It's his prerogative even to use us for his purposes if we reject him. 
and maybe even especially if we reject him. That's not to say that God causes the disobedience. He may know what we're going to do, but that's hardly the same thing as causing it. This idea of God being a potter is found in many Old Testament passages, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah. In the notes, I'll give you the actual chapters, but it actually goes back to early Genesis, where God is construed as a potter. In early Genesis, God is a gardener. He walks through the garden. He's a surgeon, taking Eve out of Adam. He is a potter. He makes Adam out of clay, out of dirt. He's also a tailor, making clothes for the people. These are all just analogies. God is none of those things, literally. But it helps us to understand and to be humble and not to, be, not to object so much. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. As I also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. And what's going on here? Notice how frequently Paul is going to the Old Testament to show that What's happening with his people, the Jewish people, in his time is really just a continuation of what's been going on in history all along. That's why he's able to quote the prophets uh, and other parts and make such great application. But some readers, I think they may have been influenced more by radio preachers than by their own study. I, I don't know. Say They say that Romans 9... 1011 speaks of a period when many Jews will become Christians, a mass conversion at the end of time. Last year, I did a podcast on that on that very subject. It's a fair question, and another podcast on questions we may have about modern Israel, because there's really a lot of disinformation, I think. It's my position that, yes, the Jews did convert to Christ, but this was in the first century. All Israel, all the true Jews, that is, the children of faith, would be saved in the end. Now, we're going to explore this more in our study of Romans 10 and Romans 11. The passage I just read, Paul takes up Isaiah's theme in Isaiah 10, which said that there would be a faithful remnant within God's people. Now, without seed, there'd be no way for the stock to grow again. It'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. That is, the genealogy would come to an abrupt halt. But there is a remnant. And remnant is obviously the minority. So it's bad news. On the other hand, it could be a lot worse, right? Hosea predicted that those who are not God's people would become his people. Actually, he talks about his people not being his people. The names that Hosea gives his children. Amazing names. Look at the beginning of the prophet Hosea. What an amazing prophet. But God's people actually put themselves outside his will. 
not outside his purposes, but outside his will. And so they became not his people. Well, the Gentiles were attracted to the word, and they became his people. It's a total reversal. And in the context of the 8th century BC, when Hosea is speaking, national Israel had ceased to be the people of God. Their lack of faith had disqualified them, but Hosea foresaw a day when the faithless Jews would repent. Things would change. Paul says this time is here. Uh, does Hosea or Paul say that every Jew, everyone who claims to be a Jew, will repent and honor the Messiah? Not at all. We remember John the Baptist's message. Don't say, you know, I'm okay because of my descent. Children of Abraham, God could raise up from stones. It's not about your descent. But so many interpreters make the same mistake today. Paul has already defined Jew more narrowly than the Jews were accustomed to doing. He's saying it's not enough to define it genealogically. It's about faith. Historically, the Jews tended to view themselves as the elect, even if they were faithless. Think of Jeremiah 7, where the prophet parks outside the temple and rebukes them for equating national Israel with the true people of God. The same mistake that many evangelicals make today. Now let's look at the last part of chapter 9 and wrap up. For what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, is not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now that's the end of chapter 9. In this final section, we're reminded that Gentiles were saved apart from works. That is, apart from relying on works. It wasn't the Torah that did it to them. They're attracted to the Christ. We have to have works in that we have to live the right life. We need to line ourselves up behind the Messiah. And that's what real faith is. But it's not works of law that saves us. So the Gentiles were saved, but the Jews have fallen. But the Jews too can be saved if they're willing to base their righteousness on faith and truly walk the talk. Think back to our theme verse in 116 and 17. You, by faith, is righteous will live, or the righteous will live by his faith. For more on the stone, the stone is a very common motif in early Christian teaching. It comes from Psalm 118, Isaiah 28, but it's used by Peter and others. And it's so easy to stumble. And we'll see more about the stumbling over law versus faith um, as Paul continues the discussion in chapter 10. Think about these things today and come back as we continue our study of these deep waters of Romans 9 to 11. We hope you enjoyed Douglas' teaching on Romans. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.